You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Come Home, Full Life in a Whole Church. In this series, we see that those who come to Christ find new life in a new family. We'll learn why the church exists, what it does, and how each of us is a valuable part. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell cannot conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, soldier, and peace be with you. Thanks, band. Uh, my name's Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining us on this sunny, I guess it's not sunny, rainy spring Sunday. I was trying to say spring and Sunday at the same time when it came out Sunday. Uh, earlier this week, I woke up uh, somewhere between 4.30 and 5 a.m. Uh, to the sounds of a sobbing six-year-old. And in my, my sleepy haze, my first thought was, me too, buddy, because <laughs> uh, I resonate with that feeling. And then I realized that I'm a dad, his dad in particular. And so like a good dad, I said, come here, because I was sleepy and I didn't want to go there. And then there was silence more cries. So I climbed out of bed. I went into his room. And when I opened the door, he was sitting on his bed, uh, wrapped in his Paw Patrol blanket with an electric candle that we have in his room. And he was just sitting there crying. And it was a very heart-wrenching scene. And so I got very concerned. And I said, what's wrong, buddy? What's wrong? Are you okay? And he said, real matter-of-factly, in a bit of a heartbroken way, though, Uh, He said, I was so scared to be alone, Dad. So I scooped him up, which is bittersweet. I'm thankful he still lets me scoop him, but six-year-olds are bigger than babies, and so you realize around six how much larger your child has gotten. So as best I could, I scooped him up, and then we cuddled and laid together in his bed until it was time to get ready for school. Now, uh, on the one hand, I have incredible sympathy for this boy. He's my son, so that gets him some points. Uh, But also, you know, in the last two months, he's left the house three times. Um, We got in the van last week for lucky number three. And as we're walking to the van, he said, I hope I remember how to put my seatbelt on. You know, it's just not something that we do anymore. He's left the house three times. He hasn't seen any of his friends. He hasn't seen his friends at school in person. He hasn't seen any of his friends at church and 
There's just so much that's changed, and all of that is very, very sad. I understand where his tears might be coming from. Plus, he thought he was alone in a dark house, which is very scary for a six-year-old. So his words, his tears, I very much understood what he was saying. That's the sympathy card from dad. And yet on the other hand, while he's crying about how scared he is to be alone, his sister is 10 feet away from him. He wasn't alone. Somewhere in the, in the recesses of his unconscious mind, he must have also known that he wasn't alone because he was crying out for help. So to, maybe to put what I'm saying more clearly, he had an understandable reaction, or maybe a better way to put it would be to say he had an appropriate reaction to bad information. If he was alone, his reaction would be appropriate. It's, it's sweet when a six-year-old acts on bad information to a degree. It was sweet to be able to comfort him and to remind him that he's not alone and to lay with him. It's not so sweet when you're an adult. It's not so sweet when you make your actions based on incorrect information. And this has become very dangerous now where social media has made everybody an expert. Um, there's a tweet, I've referenced it before, I just, it, was, it just tickled me so much when I read it. He said, Twitter is the place where people who don't read books go to criticize those who write them. So social media has created this kind of level playing field where everybody's opinion counts on every subject matter across the board. Which, the danger there is we have a lot of people who don't know what they're talking about speaking authoritatively about things they don't know what they're talking about, and then people make actions based on them. So, again, it can be sweet when a six-year-old acts on bad information, not so much when you're an adult. And this can be perhaps most damaging in the church because we're the people who state that we have the truth. There's, there's one ditch that a lot of us fall into, especially these days, and that would be uh, actions based on wrong information. That's one ditch that we can fall into. The church sometimes will fall into the other ditch, though, where we have right information, but no action, which is just as damaging. So imagine how we would feel years from now if we found out that a scientist in Kansas had a cure for the coronavirus, and once he just had the cure, he was like, ah, that's great, I got the cure, but he never shared it with anybody, never did anything with it. Would we celebrate, oh, wow, he had the right information? No, we would condemn him for his lack of action in light of it. You can know the right information, but it's useless if it does not lead to action. And you can be very active and very vocal, but that's incredibly dangerous if your actions are not rooted in the truth. Which means to act properly in God's world, we have to have accurate information and appropriate behavior. The one gives way to the other. The story before us shows us, helps us see the partnership between these two realities. Over the last five weeks, we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew, trying to answer the question, what makes a church a church? What, what information do we need to know about the church? What makes a church really a church? And now we can begin considering what is the appropriate behavior of a true church. If this is what a church is, now we can move to what does a church believe, or what does a church do, rather. If, if this is what a church believes, then what does a healthy church do? 
we're clued into this tension once again by a geographic reference. Again, information leading to action. We've seen before in Matthew that where we are geographically in the story is, is often a bit of a clue as to what we're learning in the story. So verse 13, this section, it began by saying, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. So that just sounds like an interesting Bible place to us. This would have set alarm bells ringing off to the, the first readers of this story, and certainly the people who would have heard the oral traditions behind this. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is at the northernmost boundary of Israel. He's standing on the crossroads of a national boundary, so the people of God and, and those people, and so there's racial issues there. He's on a geographic, a national boundary. He's on a theological boundary. So archaeologists have uncovered dozens of pagan temples and shrines right here in this immediate area. And there's kind of an ancient Near Eastern tradition and other religions will say this, this mountain where Jesus is on the foot of, this was the place where fallen angels and demons invaded the world. So if you ask those people, where did the demonic oppression start? They would say right here in Caesarea Philippi. So there's a theological boundary here between godliness and demonic invasion. And there's a tradition boundary. Jesus Jews were expecting a Jewish Messiah for the Jewish people. So it's weird that Jesus would be kind of blurring the lines here a little bit by maybe even crossing over the boundaries of Israel. So what's important to see about that is there's a lot going on because of this place. Jesus is on an critically important crossroad, theologically, geographically, traditionally. And at this crossroad, Jesus asks a powerful question. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? So notice it says people, the kind of the generic them. And the disciples have various answers. Some people say you're this, some people say you're that. You'll notice over the course of Jesus's ministry, how much more concerned he is with you than he is with them. And what I mean is, Jesus doesn't like doing ministry in the abstract. So you, we'll see this with Pilate. He doesn't say, who do the crowd say that I am? He looks at Pilate and says, who do you say I am? Jesus wants to do personal business with you as an individual. He's more concerned with the particulars, not the abstract. He wants to know what a particular person thinks than an ambiguous group. More interested in you than in the ambiguous them more interested in his particular disciples than a faceless crowd. So after hearing their various responses, he looks to his disciples and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? You see how personal this is? Coming right on the heels of him asking, who do they say that I am? That I am? Now, who do you say that I am? Peter's response to this and Jesus' reaction is the most discussed text in all of Matthew's gospel. So listen to what happens. Verse 16 and 18. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, 
And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Powerful statements. Life-changing statements. Why is this so debated? Why is this taking up so much airtime? Which at first blush can seem pretty straightforward. Well, a lot of the debate and the conversation comes down to everyone wanting to know what the rock is here. What is the rock? Uh, interestingly, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, just as Jesus is standing on three crossroads here, there's a corresponding interpretation of this passage that kind of lines up with each of them. So a traditional interpretation would say that Peter is the rock here. Jesus is referring to the rock, and he names Peter Rocky. He's talking about Peter. We call these people who have this traditional interpretation, we call them Catholics. It's an understandable interpretation. Because, again, Peter is a play on words with rock. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I'll call you Rocky. And on this rock, I will build my church. So our Catholic brothers and sisters, they will say Jesus will build the church on Peter and the popes that would come after him. The more theological interpretation is to say Peter's confession is the rock. We call these people Protestants. It's you and me, baby. That's what we call us, Protestants. And typically in our church, we would say, no, the rock here is Peter's confession. It's the theological rock of Peter's confession that will build the church. And then there's one that doesn't get hardly any airtime at all. Uh, it's the most fun, if you can call an interpretation fun, uh, it's the geographic interpretation, because this physical place that Jesus is standing on in the area was literally called the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. And they called it that because, again, they saw this physical place and this mountain that Jesus is standing on in particular, the place of demonic incursion. Where did all the demons and fallen angels hit ground in the earth? Well, on this mountain, in the base of the mountain, they called the gates of hell. And so here Jesus is standing on the gates of hell. And they argue that this physical space is where Jesus will build his church, declaring his authority over spiritual powers. So there you have it. There's been 2,000 years of debate on which one it is. We're going to solve it all in about five minutes here. Don't worry. I think if you guys had been here, you would have laughed at that. But now that we're in an empty room, does that sound snarky? You know what I mean? It was intended to be a joke, okay? Probably not going to solve it in five minutes. 15? I don't know. Maybe we go 15. <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, we could spend hundreds of hours Zooming about this. You can't just say Zoom anymore. I had about six O's when I say Zoom. Uh, a Zoom meeting. So if you want to go into nuances and details or find other books, send me an email. We'll talk about it. Um, but we can take a few moments and try to make some connections and, and clarify this a little bit. Uh, I would argue that one of the great sins of the church, particularly churches like ours, and maybe even more so particularly Protestant churches, is the sin of reductionism. And that's, that's where uh, we try to reduce something to make it only one thing, thereby damaging something that's beautiful and complex revealed by God. To understand something or to feel in control of it, we make it uglier rather than honoring the beauty of something that is maybe more than one thing or a complex reality that can't be reduced to one truth. And so you'll, you'll see lots of people in churches like ours that 
kind of devolve into either or thinking. It's this or it's that. You're in or you're out. These kinds of rigid black and white lines. So again, let's just, we've done this a little bit, but for the sake of clarity, let's think. Come reason with me now. Matthew obviously thinks the geography of this place is important. He tells you where they are, and he uses a geographic reference that his first readers would have without a doubt known and understood what he was saying. Peter is obviously important in this story, because why would Jesus use a play on words? He could have changed Peter's name to almost anything. Why does he say Rocky and then Rock? There's something obviously important here. And then Clearly, Jesus thinks Peter's confession is important because that's what he spends the most time explaining, specifically the source of Peter's confession. He says Peter could not have said what he said had that not been revealed to him by God. So why spend so much time on this information? I thought we were going to talk about what a church does. The confession has much to say about our behavior of the church and how you interpret and where you land on the information of this passage will determine much of how you respond in terms of prioritizing the activities of the church. So just speaking for us, at Sojourn Church, New Albany, there is so much we have to learn about spiritual warfare and Jesus's mission to assert his authority over demons and false gods. That's in essence the lesson of the geographic interpretation here. Spiritual warfare is real, and Messiah would come to reclaim authority over all realms. We have much to learn about honoring authority and the people that God uses in powerful ways. People like Peter. Or maybe a less threatening example would be Jesus' mother, Mary. We have a lot to learn about honoring these people that God has used in significant ways. That's, that's some of the lesson of the traditional interpretation about Peter. The reason both of these interpretations are viable at all is because of the confession that Peter makes. The geography of this place does not matter unless Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The person of Peter or the person of Mary or anybody in church history, they only matter if Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. At the core of all of these interpretations is the necessity for Peter's confession, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So listen, all three of these interpretations are part of the whole truth. And each one of them can become distorted and become perversions of the truth. So the tradition and traditional interpretation gets distorted to things like apostolic succession. You can go read about what that means. Go Google it. This passage is not about popes and it's not about church hierarchy. That is a distortion of what's being taught here. The theological interpretation can get distorted into thinking we only need information. If only we had more detailed creeds. If we only taught everybody the right confession. The geographic interpretation gets distorted thinking we have to go become demon hunters and everything is a demon. So there's dangers in overemphasizing them. We have to see that they hold together. And the way we hold them together is through Peter's confession. Christ, Messiah, these were... These were heavily loaded terms back then. They had lots of baggage, which is part of the reason why at the end here, Jesus says to his disciples, don't tell anybody I'm Messiah yet. Don't tell them I'm the Christ yet. Because they would have understood that to mean something different than what Jesus was revealing. 
In today's language, Peter's confession would go something like this. You are the answer. You are the point, the last word, the meaning. You are it. He's saying you are everything. When rightly embraced, this becomes the heart of a whole church's activity. We honor people because Jesus is the answer. And we can see his goodness, his power moving through men and women throughout human history. We stand, notice we don't pursue it, but we stand in the face of demonic oppression because Jesus has won the victory and we no longer have to be afraid. All we are and all we do comes from the reality that Jesus is Lord. This is the truth and the practice of every genuine church and every sincere Christian. The the principle is, All we do must reveal that Jesus is the Christ. There may be times where this means we have to learn how to articulate theological arguments or know what is not true and what is true about God, which again, you can go back and look at what does it mean to be a church built on the authority of God's word. So that's certainly part of it, learning to articulate theological arguments. But Jesus as the Christ is a confession we experience too. And some of what this means is teach your children that God will keep them safe, that God will care for them. And then when your child is crying, dad, you embody the peace of Christ and go lay down with your child. And you say, this is what it feels like. If, if you make your child feel scared, they will never believe that God will make them feel safe. You get to embody this invitation. Jesus is the Messiah who has overcome all realities of spiritual darkness. And so dad, you can go in body that. Don't be afraid because he is with you and your son or daughter will learn what that feels like as you wrap him in your strong arms. Mom, you get to teach your child to pray, turning all their curiosity to the Lord. I know it can be maddening, all of the whys of the four-year-old, but you get to turn their curiosity to the Lord and teach them to pray. And you're revealing to them that Jesus is the answer. He is the meaning. We can do mundane tasks like cleaning our homes and yards because God is a God of order and beauty. And as we do these things, we reveal to the world what it means that Christ is the Messiah. Even our physical spaces, we reveal that Jesus is the Christ, both with our words and then our actions, the information we convey and the lives we live, we are revealing Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. To confess Jesus is Lord is to enter into a profound reorientation where all we do has as its aim revealing that Jesus is the Christ, the hope of the world. Small and large, words and actions. It's not one or the other. These must be married together. And there's there's one final point. It's pretty subtle, I think but it's timely for us, particularly with everything that's going on, that I think will help make all of this feel maybe a bit more concrete. I'm not precisely sure, but it's, Jesus has been with these disciples for a year, two years at this point. He, he's been with them for a while. And if you've been listening along to Matthew with us, you know all of the things the disciples have done. They've done real ministry. They've served people. They've witnessed miracles. They've been hip to hip with Jesus. And you see, This is the first time Jesus asks them, who do you think I am? Or maybe to put it, you know, more in our kind of language today, what do you believe about me? A couple of years. 
Certainly there's a time for decision, but we often put such pressure on ourselves to get someone to say the right thing. In some ways, we turn the gospel into a spell. And if I would sling it at you right, and you would respond with the right words, then we could move on to the next person in the grand kingdom of God assembly line. Jesus walked with these people for years. Sometimes that time of decision, of confessing that Jesus is Lord, is not until years of ministry, years of walking, years of serving. And we can endure the waiting and the seemingly ordinary ways of revealing Jesus is Lord, the ones that don't make the headlines, because we know nothing can stop the church from being built. There's hundreds of hours that we don't get of Jesus's life with these disciples because it was all probably really, really ordinary and every day. And we know now that nothing can stop the church from being built. We have the promise of Jesus and the witness of the last 2,000 years of history. So listen, if not even the gates of hell can stop the church, then neither can a pandemic and neither can a potential recession. This truth empowers us to walk with great confidence. And some of us need to have a category of confidence in the ordinary, long-term, everyday rhythms of life. So some of you, some of you need to talk to my man, Michael Miller. He's a member here. You may have seen him on stage before. He leads our Connect team. And he's a mailman. Can you imagine how scary it could be to be a mailman right now? Imagine how frightening that would be? Very good reasons to be afraid. Michael is a dear friend, and it's scary out there. He's scared out there. But amidst all of this fear, he's also talking to people on his route about Jesus every day. He's just delivering mail and also delivering the hope of the world by confessing Jesus is Lord to all of these people. And listen, it's not like something happened and he's like, today I'm gonna go start doing this. Michael has been doing this as long as I've known him. Four or five years, praying for folks on his route, telling them about Jesus. I'll be talking on the phone with him while he's out doing his route and be like, hang on a second, man. And he'll be like, Margaret, how's your dog doing? I've been praying for him for two weeks or, you know, stuff like that. And, And he'll stop and start praying for somebody on his route. So what, you know, a week or so ago, when he told me to pray for a man on his route, I was like, yeah, no big deal. Sure. Because this kind of stuff happens all the time with Michael. And I'll be honest, it's not like a lot has happened, or it's not we've seen this revival break out through his mailman ministry. So when he told me to pray for this guy, I was like, yeah, no big deal. And then a week later, Michael texted to say this man gave his life to Christ while Michael was on his mailbox route, or mailman route, whatever, a mailbox conversion. And we rejoiced, and I was kind of shocked. And it took time for something like this to happen. It took repeated attempts. It took prayer. And then it happened while someone was on a mail route in the middle of a Wednesday, in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. Michael didn't let any of his past keep him from walking in light of his confession. If what I'm saying here is true, then I get to live this way. He didn't let his fear get in the way. He didn't act like he's not been afraid, but he didn't let the fear get in the way, and he didn't let the apparent lack of fruit overdoing this for years get in the way. Because listen, if hell can't overcome the confessing church, neither can boring days or uninterested people. That's the point I'm trying to show you. What does the church do? At its core, we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and this affects everything we do. 
The big things, the small things, the way we talk about religious matters and Jesus himself and the way we take care of our lawns and go about our jobs. The centrality of Jesus and the confession that he is it. He is the answer. That is the power of a true Christian and that is the power at work in every true Christian. There are many ways to build a crowd or a club, but Jesus is the only way you build a church. Full life, and a whole church is found as we confess the whole Christ. He is Lord, he is the answer, and nothing can stop his church from being built. So week in, week out, we root ourselves in the reminder of his great love for us and what it is we are confessing. And so we come to remember the night he was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread, he blessed it and broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal was over, he took a cup of wine and he says, this is the cup sealed with the shedding of my blood, seals your relationship with God. Drink this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. So this is what we confess. Christ came, his body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. His life was given for us so that through him, we could be reconciled to God and the whole world would be made new again. Wherever you are, take a picture of how you're celebrating this meal. Take what you have to remember God's provision for you, his body given for you and his blood shed for you. Uh, fill our Facebook feed with pictures. We're using the hashtag, he is risen to be reminded of the sweet Easter season and the hope of life that we have. This is our message, Christian. Christ came, Christ lived, Christ died, Christ was raised. He is the answer, the point, the last word, the meaning. He is it. And now in communion, we remember that you are his. So go with this confidence and proclaim this hope. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.